0: Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdee and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast, in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the country where I live and work and from where I'm joining this conversation the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders past and present to the elders of all communities and cultures across Australia and to leaders of the future. You can listen to this podcast, all of the episodes at nicoleabody.com.au or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to episode three of the Books, Books, Books Griffith Review series. It's wonderful to once again welcome Dr. Ashley Hay, editor of Griffith Review, to talk about edition 74 the fourth and final edition of the Griffith Review for 2021, entitled Escape Roots. Ashley, welcome back to Books, Books, Books.
1: Thanks, Nick. It's lovely to be here.
0: Now, you explain in your introduction that the final edition of the Griffith Review for each year is always a little bit different from the previous three issues. Could you just talk a little bit about that? How's the final edition different?
1: I think it gives us a chance to sort of cast our net a bit more broadly. So the the first three books for each year for us are very much built around a theme or a question, you know, uh, some kind of matter of moment that we really want to get to grips with and explore in some depth, Um, something that we want to kind of open up a conversation around, both within the pieces um, in the book itself and also Hopefully, for our readers out into the world and, and more broadly. In the fourth book, uh, we're, we're sort of collating a different kind of reading collection, I guess. For a lot of years, the fourth edition of Griffith Review hosted its novella competition, which ran very successfully uh, through eight iterations. This year, we're very excited that the fifth, First time we've got a new competition, the Emerging Voices competition, where we invited emerging writers who we defined as anyone who is, you know, somewhere on the spectrum from completely unpublished up to having one book out there in the world uh, to send us through fiction or non fiction long form, which was sort of up to around 5,000 words, uh, but not with a theme, just just the chance to show us their best work. Um, The title for this book, Escape Routes, honestly came from the sense we had in the Griffiths Review Office that by the end of 2021, either we would all have found a way out of the strange kind of year that we were having, the strange kind of two years that we were having, or if not, we would all be desperately looking for one. So uh, I think, unfortunately, rather than delivering our readers this kind of lovely book of summer reading that they could take on their utterly uninterrupted and carefree beach holidays, um, we came into the world in a slightly different space to that uh, and perhaps the idea of sort of daydreams and jailbreaks and, you know, imagining the things that we might do was still a little bit more resonant than we'd hoped it might be. But it just gives us a chance to 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 construct the book a little differently, I guess, to um, approach authors we know are working on projects or, or we know, um, you know might have stories that would feed into this much more broad space to bring in a bit more poetry than usual, and really just to, just to offer up a different kind of collection for people as they walk into, hopefully, some kind of pause as one year flips over to the next.
0: Ash, I thought it was interesting. I'm going to start by asking you about the four winning works from the Emerging Voices competition. I note that it was um, open to fiction and non-fiction entries, Mm. but I was interested to see the four winners were all fiction. Was that something Mm. that surprised you?
1: We were interested. We had a much higher number of fiction entries than non-fiction, and I want to say two things. Uh, First of all, we were absolutely astonished and delighted by the response to this competition so we had more than 300 entries there were so many extraordinary pieces of work in this group there were pieces from names that we knew there were pieces from you know people who were honestly sending us you know some of their very first pieces of work and there were so many that could have ended up on the long list and very easily in the pages of an edition of Griffith Review, so we were thrilled by that. We were really thrilled too to be able to offer such generous prizes, which was thanks to the funding from the Copyright Agency. Um, that has been a long partnership for us through Novella, and we're delighted to kind of bring this forward. In terms of that kind of fiction/non-fiction split, um, I'm interested. You know, Griffith Review does have more of a reputation as being a non-fiction space. So I was particularly interested that there was so much strong fiction coming through. As someone who has a foot in both camps, the fiction and the non-fiction writing world, I think I was particularly thrilled because the fiction and the poetry always seemed to me to be such a critical part of any of the the editions that we're putting together. So I loved the fact that Writers were responding to us as a natural home for fiction. In that way, we did have um, some non-fiction on the long list. We're actually going to be publishing one of the pieces, one of the non-fiction pieces that was on the long list, in a subsequent edition. Um, and the competition has actually just opened up again for the end of 2022. Um, so I'm really interested to see what we get this time. We feel like. Um, opening the competition right at the beginning of a new year when people are very enthusiastic about keeping all those commitments they've made to themselves about actually you know putting things putting things across the line putting them out there for for sort of you know critique and judgment in that way we feel like that's a really good time of year mm. for people so we're excited to see what comes over the line this year in terms of a book called escape routes Four Pieces of Fiction was a really perfect space to end up. Um, And I was really interested too that, you know, given that the pieces hadn't been submitted to a theme, they do all speak in really interesting ways to the title that we'd given the whole anthology.
0: I think they do. Let's start by talking about Declan Fry's story, Mm. Americano Sal. So that's set in Palermo in Sicily in 2019. What's it about, Ash?
1: It's this wonderful story of discovery i guess um so americano sal is uh, an american italian man who um approaches i was going to say friends, but that's maybe too strong a world um a traveling australian as australians used to you know be able to be the traveling australian going around the world meeting the people having the interesting conversations and it becomes obvious that americano sal's um, story is a bit of a slippery thing. It's a bit of a it's a bit of an elusive thing. Um, the narrator of the piece, you know, sort of takes him quite at face value, and he's interested in doing the thing that Australians like to do: engaging with people that they meet in new places, finding out what their story is. Americano sells. Our story is a little bit different the narrator is also trying to talk to uh, some of the African immigrants and middle eastern immigrants who are who are living in Sicily as well and so there's all these kind of different different lives uh, lives being lived in this new place but also lives being escaped from in mm. very interesting ways mm. um, and there are some beautiful twists in this i'm a I'm a huge fan of declan Fry's work I think he is one of the most Exciting people working across fiction and non fiction. I think some of the things he's doing is phenomenal. Mm. We published a very short poem of his in 2021, which was selected by Best Australian Science Writing last year, which I mm. loved. So I was really delighted when his piece came through as
0: one of the four winners. We were able to kind of work with him on this much longer piece of work. Let's talk now about the next one The Menaced Assassin by VJ mm. Kurana. Mm. So, in this one, just to set the scene, Sophie's an Australian actress who's on holiday in New York with her boyfriend, Paul. They're wandering through a museum in New York, just having a lovely time. And the important thing to note is she's a celebrity in Australia. She's very well known and recognizable in Australia, but not in the US. When she is recognized by an Australian fan, she is at risk of having a secret revealed. What point do you think Kurana? is making in this story
1: well this is another kind of lovely twist on ideas of escape isn't it so yes here's sophie with her her beautiful life she's an actress in a very successful television show in australia she's much more successful than her boyfriend who's also an actor um you know they're there in new york she thinks he's going to propose to her Um, She's got this, you know, as I suspect we all do, she's got this very loud narrative running in her head of where she is and what she's doing. She's got this kind of performative sense of herself. Of course, she's also got the performative sense of herself that a lot of people have now doing all that posting on their social media platform of choice. And all of this is playing out in the context of the museum, Uh, this young girl who recognises her, this painting, the menaced assassin, which she's, you know, sort of looking at and thinking about and, and transposing herself into in an interesting way. Um, and all these notions of privacy and celebrity, mm. of the kind of very 21st-century sense of accessibility that mm. almost everyone needs to live with now, whether they're a famous person or not. Mm. Um, it's it's beautifully handled. VJ um, Vijay Karana uh, came out of a, a sort of a, a broadcast background. Um, he'd written a children's book before this, uh, which I actually knew because it had been one that my son had read years ago and loved. Um, again, this was something that was just such a beautifully assured and exciting voice to pick up on. He works now out of Berlin. Um, there's a, just a, a lovely certainty in this story and he handles... Very carefully and very, um, very deftly and sort of respectfully, mm. the mess that this mm. highly successful woman has mm. got herself into, and does this beautiful thing of just leaving you, yeah, ahead of it
0: all Absolutely, I had to read it a couple of times to really mm. get it, and when I did the second time, as you said, very deft, very nuanced, and mm. it seems to me that the point that he was really trying to make there was that in this day and age, certainly for celebrities but really for any of us that are engaging in or participating in social media, there is no escape. There is no privacy. There is no escape. And she very nearly comes unstuck as a result of her own um, use of social media.
1: And the fact that I think think the other thing that came through so clearly for me is no matter how how sure you are about that very loud story you can hear in your own head about what's going on and what you're doing in it. Um, there are always other versions mm. just in play in your peripheral vision. It's, it's a beautiful piece. Really, it is. Really thrilled to have that one in the book.
0: Let's talk now about Emily Presents by Alison Gibbs. So this was... Um, It really resonated with me as someone who spends a lot of time at writers' festivals, either listening or participating as an an interviewer. This is set, the milieu that it's set in is the Sydney Writers' Festival. It's set in the future. We're told that it's 15 years on from the pandemic, so I'm guessing, hoping, that that's sort of the 2030s. Um, What's it about, Ash?
1: Uh, I love this one, um, probably because, like Unique, I spend a lot of time in these places. Um, we worked with three wonderful external judges uh, for this group with Rachel Binsala from Magabala. Uh, with Robert Watkins, uh, just as he was transitioning over to Ultimo Press, um, and with Aviva Tuffield from UQP. And I think for anyone who works in the publishing industry, um, this one had some particular things that, you know, people either recognised and thought were fabulous or recognised and just thought, oh, my goodness, that's exactly the awfulness of it all. The fantastic thing about this piece is um, that the Sydney Writers' Festival in this imagined future uh, has raised the funds to bring a very particular celebrity, uh, a very particular international guest, into their program, which is um, the the kind of the kind of clone or the reincarnation or the revivification um, of Emily Brontë. Uh, this is part of a of a, a sort of a an international. Um, network of these writers who are available. Jane Austen doesn't travel so they can't get her um, but Emily comes and uh, and Emily is supposed to do what writers do of turning up and performing a conversation with a person for an audience of very excited, uh, very enthusiastic fans. Now um, you can see many things that may go wrong. What, with what this. could possibly go wrong? <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? I think the thing that I love this, this is a piece by um, Alison Gibbs, uh, whose first novel I think came out uh, early in 2021 through Describe. Um, again, you know, really excited to to be able to work with Alison for the first time through this. What I loved about the piece uh, was not just that evocation of of a um, milieu that yes I really did find very familiar, but also yes, you can imagine immediately the things that can go wrong but what goes wrong isn't what you expect no and I think um, I think the there's a real delicacy and, um, humanity is the wrong word in the context of the Emily in question, but, but I think just the, the, the layers of emotion that Alison brings in around all of the characters as they navigate this very strange situation that they've all been put in by the, you know, the bringing back from the dead of this woman um, is really beautiful.
0: I thought there was a really interesting conversation between um, the, the narrator and her friends at an early point about yes. where she was trying to sort of justify what they were doing. And these, they are clones. They're called Litterones, which mm. I loved. And she's asked about, well, what are they? And, and there's sort of different things come up. They have no short-term memory. They can remember only the past, but they are sentient and they can feel pain. And I like the way that uh, Alison explored by inference and directly some of the ethical issues that mm. that raised it did make me think a little bit of James Bradley's book ghost mm. and species uh, mm. from a couple of years ago I've interviewed James on this program and they talk about frankenstein frankenstein and about playing god and I thought it was really interesting exploration of those ethical issues as well
1: I think so and um and also again I guess this links with with Vijay the menaced assassin, but just the very delicate exploration of this requirement for the performative, you know, this extraordinary exchange that, that is expected now, that we take for granted. Mm. You know, I, I think one of, one of the, the most heartbreaking things I felt um, was that, you know, Emily was still being required to perform, that she mm. was still being... Sing for her supper. Yes, required to be out there and do this thing. Mm. I, I, I don't think it would only resonate with those of us in the in the industry. I think you know probably there are a lot of people who've sat through a lot of conversations at a lot of literary events who would find you know maybe a lot of a lot of interesting little lateralities or or sort of diversions to to think about in this piece. It's um
0: it's it's a really great one. Let's turn now to the fourth of the um, emerging voices winners. I'm not sure how to pronounce this camel camelopard camelopard camelopard, camelopard. is my
1: is my take on it camelopard
0: now this one's by Andrew Roth and I was interested to see that it's been republished by Guardian Australia this is a really mm. quirky original story who's the narrator I love this story
1: um so yes this one's been picked up by the Guardian the Guardian actually picked up all four of the winners so the narrator in this piece and I think this was the one that, you know, for us in the, in the Griffith Review editorial team, um, we all immediately loved this piece. It's the narrator is uh, a sporting team's mascot. So, you know, you think, oh, okay, it's the guy in the suit. Um, and the suit in this instance is a giraffe. And the question is whether the guy in the suit is still the guy or whether he is now the giraffe because he really has become one And he lives in the suit. He lives in the the stadium where the sporting team that he represents plays, sometimes not all that well. He lives entirely in that kind of cage, I guess. You know, he eats the food that you can get at a a stadium. Um, He goes in and kind of sits with the manager of the team so that the manager can literally pet him. Um, you know, this is his safe space and you get the sense that he has escaped a worse world, a worse way of being by coming into this job and by really embodying and taking on this role. So the twist here is it's not just the team whose fortunes are are failing, I guess, um, but it is the world more broadly beyond the stadium that is really starting to disintegrate and you don't see it clearly you don't see it directly you just see it you know through the quite
0: distinct eyes of this character ash where did andrew roth get the idea from memory i
1: think he was he was at a sports game watching a mascot and sort of thinking about thinking about you know what if this is your job and if this is your job what does that actually mean and i think We've, we, we've worked with Andrew before. One of my first editions in 2019 was The New Disruptors. We published a beautiful short story by him there, which I think was one of his earliest um, publications, and it was about uh, someone who spent an, an insane amount of money, an entire inheritance on getting wings so that they could fly. And I, one of the things that I love about Andrew's work, he's gone on to win prizes. He's got a book of short stories coming out soon. But he, he takes that sort of... Starting possibility of fiction of taking a beginning point and asking the first what if, and he just keeps asking yeah. the what ifs. He just keeps taking it the next step, the next yeah. step, the next step. It's again, um, I think there's a certainty in the voice and a real, um, a real clarity. You don't at any point not believe where you are and who you're with. Mm. No, it's and very assured. Absolutely, and um, you you care for this character. Yeah. You understand how their world is changing. Their their you know their immediate world. Um, it's got a beautiful ending. Um, yeah, it's it as I say, it was one when we were sort of you know reading through the first the first you know all three hundred hit or three hundred and six however many we had. Um, this one really leapt out. It was just wonderful.
0: As the last piece of fiction that I want to ask you about is Vavan by Beiruz Buchani, Kurdish Iranian writer uh, who is now an associate professor in social sciences at UNSW. And I note this story was translated from the Persian. Tell us about Vavan, the title character, and what it is that he's trying to escape.
1: I'm so thrilled to have this piece of fiction uh, from Beiruz Buchani. We worked Uh, with Behrouz on um, a long conversation piece between him and one of his earlier translators over to Fidjean when Behrouz was still uh, incarcerated on Manus Island uh, for our Crimes of Punishments edition. And it was so exciting to see this fictional voice come onto Mm. the page. Um, This is a beautiful story of a lost brother um, well, actually, not a lost brother. I think an escaped brother. Really, uh, it's a small village. It's um, it's a country where you know there's a, a requirement to do your military service. Um, the the brother who is supposed to go into service, um, you know, needs needs some guidance to get to the city to take up this position. He doesn't want to go. He's got his own way of being in the world. Um, It's a pretty self-contained way of being in the world.
0: Very sensitive, isn't he? He's particularly sensitive. He's introverted. He doesn't really feel comfortable with people or in cities.
1: Yeah, and it's this lovely exploration from the other brother's perspective, from the sort of observer's perspective of just how someone navigates the thing that they have to do in their own way and finds their own possibility and potential to just make it how they want it to be it's um it's again just just lovely being in those words and and you know being able to share this particular voice from this particular writer in an edition called great escapes
0: mm, very it appropriate pa-
1: it was particularly moving um, yeah. from an editorial speaking, speaking of great
0: escapes absolutely yes, yes let's move ash now to non-fiction i'd like to start by asking you about unaccompanied minor by madeline mm. watts Now, here we have, uh, this is autobiographical, her father left her and her mother when she was four and moved from Sydney to Melbourne. And the consequence was that she grew up between the two cities, taking, which I thought this was amazing, about 10 flights a year, starting off, obviously, as an unaccompanied minor. And she writes about how she has two separate lives, one's in Sydney and one's in Melbourne, and neither parent knows about much about the other. The parents are completely estranged, very hostile, and neither of them knows much about her life in the other place. She says something really interesting. She says, I was glad to know from a young age that things look different from the perspective of somewhere else, that you can really, sorry, that you really can escape sometimes. And I was wondering, what do you think she means by that? How can looking at things from a different perspective feel like an escape?
1: I think there's something here that also connects to that aspect of the performative in Vijay Karana's piece and I, and I don't mean that um, I don't mean that in a sense of pretending but I think one of the things I found really lovely and moving in Maddie's piece was the sense of almost getting to try out different ways of being you know she gets to be one kind of little girl with one parent and one kind of little girl with the other one and and I'm I'm sure that, you know, there would be lots of people who live between split families or, you know, whatever that sort of relationship is that allows you to be in that other space. But there's something about the the geographical distance that allows her to do that more consciously or more, maybe more sort of obviously to herself. You know, she's never going to run into anyone from life A when she's in Mm. life B. And I think one of the most powerful things um, about reading this particular work by Madeline, was when we started working with her on this essay, which was probably halfway through 2021, we were still very much in an immobile state. You know, Sydney was just walking towards its very long lockdown. Um, where in Queensland, that border was still shut, remained shut for ages. Madeline's living overseas at the moment, so she was very much dissociated from here um and and there was something beautiful about reflecting on the ease with which she did this um as a child the ease with which she could move the ease with which she could sort of have these other little bits of life while we all sat there not able to do any of those things I've often wondered if it's one of the things that makes gives Australians such itchy feet it's not just that we're curious or that we feel a long way away and we want to go and see where other things are I think there is something that we sort of innately understand that things will be different from that other place and we will be different in that other place and there's a there's a really I've always liked that sense of malleability so as a reader I think I it it felt to me like Maddie was really putting that into words in a way that made sense for me as an Australian and as a formally hopefully only you know temporarily grounded traveling
0: australian and i think that that was to me was another element to it as you said the living the two lives but then there was almost a third life as well which she describes as the liminality which is when she's on the plane flying between the two and she writes about how whenever she leaves one place she cries and she does that on the plane and then she does certain other things on the plane and she reflects on things in the plane and As you say, those of us from Australia that used to travel can well remember those long periods of what are in effect periods of liminality as you move between one place and another. And I thought her exploration of that concept was really interesting as well.
1: It was beautiful and it rang so true for me. There's something, um, being on planes has always felt to me like an extraordinarily, it's not just the privilege of being able to travel. But it's the privilege of that little bubble of time and space. I'm a, I'm against being able to get your email on planes. So I'm against this kind of connectivity. You know, I loved that you you used to literally just be in a bubble yes. and you you were in one yes. point and then you're in another point. And I think I, I loved her recognition and her unpacking of the gift of that. Um, it reminded me, you know, this is in a different kind of terrain, but there's a lovely quote from Rebecca Solnit about um, the speed of thought being a direct correlate of the speed at which we walk, about, you know, four miles an hour or something, six kilometres an hour. And as someone who walks as my sort of primary form of transport, I understand that that gives me a different piece of space and time between two places that I have to be. Mm. And I think part of what Maddie was unpacking for me was that sort of thing of understanding the importance not just of the two separate lives but, as you say, the gift that allowed her to navigate them and to shift kind of a little bit gradually from one to the other rather than that sort of I'm this and now I'm that change. I, I found it; I, I, it's a lovely piece of writing. I, I really love um Maddie's essays and her fiction writing as well but I think it had an extra power in this edition and in this particular time so I know it's resonated with a lot of readers in that way as well.
0: Let's talk now about At the End of the Line by B.J. Silcox also a fabulous literary critic who's um, well known to most people in the in the books community. When this story opens BJ is living in Canberra she's working there as a public servant as a policy uh, in policy she's just been released from hospital after a serious motorcycle accident when she receives a phone call tell us about that call
1: so the setup for this is as you say BJ works in policy Uh, her husband her partner uh, is a defat person he's posted overseas and um She has this motorbike accident. A colleague takes her to the hospital, brings her home. She gets a call at an odd time of the day. She presumes it's her partner because he's away. Um, She picks up the phone. There's a kind of pause on the line. She presumes it's because it's her partner and he's a long way away. We're a long way back here. We're pre-smartphones, which is a very integral part of the story. So mobile phones exist, but they are not anything like things that we have now. So you can't. The critical thing being, you can't see who's calling you. You can't see who's calling you. Um, you you don't have the power and the agency that you have now. And the call is, uh, it's a stalker. Essentially, it becomes a stalker because the call, the caller keeps calling, um, and it is this extraordinary story of BJ's experience of this, which is you know. Pretty horrific mm. um, in terms of an invasion of privacy. Mm. In terms of how how powerless she is to stop this. She's recovering from this injury.
0: She's on her own. She's in. Canberra, you know, all these sorts of elements. And it's not what? like she doesn't try. She goes to the police, she tries, she speaks no. to the telco, and yeah. none of them can help her. And it, no. and it becomes a very long, I mean, she talks about it. at one point, she says, I'm not going to bore you with the details of the hundreds of calls. So there were literally hundreds. Hundreds of calls, yeah.
1: And she can't,
0: because she doesn't
1: have the number,
0: she can't do anything
1: about blocking it. So, you know, you think about when you get those annoying calls from, you know, people trying to sell you something. Mm-hmm. Now you just block the call and you know you don't hear from that particular number again, but I think just the the smallness of the smallness of the individual person, the individual woman in this instance, is extraordinary. What is so phenomenal about this piece? I am I love BJ's work. I, I love her reviews. I love, love how she thinks into books and how she understands what the work writer is doing and how she honors that. I am really excited to see more and more of her, her writing of her own stories, mm. in a sense. Mm. What I love about this is this piece becomes, in a sense, a genesis story for mm. her own writing life. Mm. And it is the most amazing insistence on, on
0: taking your own power. Mm. on own, owning, owning your story you know, we see how she deals with this and we see how unrelenting it is. And, you know, talking mm. about escape, she has no escape because she can't not pick up the call because a partner's in Afghanistan and he could be calling yeah. at any time. So she can't filter the call. She can't stop answering the phone. Um, she has no escape. And as you say, that she, she's in a very passive role. But then she takes back control by starting to write her story and she reformulates yeah. it in different ways. And it's a... It's a great sort of metamorphosis, isn't it? At, at, where she moves from being passive to active, and then it, yeah, it actually yeah. projects her into the fabulous career that she's now in. Absolutely. I when I read this uh, the first
1: time when the first draft came through, um, I I had the physical sensation of a kind of stomach punch when I hit the last line. It is so perfect, so fabulous. Um, yeah, I think this is one of the wonderful things about being an editor is you you' it's not just the privilege of working with the writers, but it's when you when you get to work with them on a piece that you not only can can sort of craft and bring to the readers, but you can see the work it's doing for them for the next thing that they might do. This piece feels um, important to me in BJ's kind of writing life. Um, I'm just thrilled that it's in in the mix, and as I say, so excited to to hopefully start to see more of her essays and and more of the longer form she might want to be writing, whether that's fiction
0: or nonfiction. because I, I think she's an amazing voice. I agree. All right, let's talk now. I don't want to say one of my favourites because they're all my favourites. I I loved all of them, but for someone who doesn't know very much about science and doesn't read very much about science. This one really um, blew me away, Moonwalking by Alice Gorman. Start, Ash, by telling us who she is. What's her profession? I love Alice
1: Gorman. She is a space archaeologist. What what does that mean? (laughs) I've never even heard that expression. (laughs) Well, um, there's a lot of crap up there in space not doing things anymore. So there are a lot of artefacts in space. There are a lot of satellites. There are a lot of bits of detritus. There There are things that no longer have the purpose that they used to have. And so part of what Alice does, she does a lot of other things. But space archaeology, in my way of conceiving of it, is to think about the kind of artefacts that we might find on the ground, what they tell us about what people were trying to do or how people were living. Alice does that out of the atmosphere, which I think is wonderful. Um, She goes by the moniker of Dr Space Junk, Um, several years ago she wrote a great essay for Griffith's Review which ended up winning the Bragg UNSW Science Writing Prize and was in that year's Best Australian Science Writing Edition. Um, This piece really grew. I'm a big admirer of Alice's work and I've been talking to her over the years just about, you know, could she please think about writing something else? And we had this lovely um, conversation, I'm not even sure where, just a kind of a line noting the obvious fact that, you know, the patriarchy done a great job of running the planet, claiming it for itself. Hopefully we're, you know, starting to chip into that a little. Um, so what if we went with a matriarchy in space? What if we insisted as we are working out how we are going to move through space differently, be a species in space differently, what if we took this as the starting point? Now, I had no idea where Alice's fantastic mind would go from this and I love where it goes. So it goes on the one hand (laughs) into the kind of magical ludicrous realm of science fiction, very early science fiction, you know, all the way through
0: to your kind of Barbarellas and those things that you're expecting to see. Making Um, the point that there were always women in space in fiction. Always,
1: always. But then she goes into this very interesting uh, area about the law and the ethics of space, Mm. which is a growth area, unsurprisingly, because you know, there, are, there is a lot of work being done in very seriously trying to consider. And this comes down, like, in really particular ways that I'd never thought about who we put into space, mm. how you get to be those people in space. I mean, in the year when very rich men have finally reached the point where they can blast themselves off in their rockets with either people who pay an insane amount of money or some kind of crazy, you know, Willy Wonka golden
0: ticket Scenario. By the way, allowing them to escape the pandemic, which none of the absolutely, rest of us can escape.
1: Absolutely. You know, some of these questions about it's like the questions that feed into who designs our algorithms. If our algorithms mm. are being designed by you know middle-class white men, we get a certain world. If our if space exploration is being driven by one population of people with no diversity.
0: What kind of outer space do we get? So, I I just would like to interject with the statistics that a couple of statistics that I noted from this that I thought were really interesting for our listeners. So, in the 20th century, 12 men became moonwalkers, zero women, obviously. And of all the people who have traveled into space ever, only 11.5% of them are women. And she notes that the US has announced that it will send the first woman to the moon by 2024. And the, as you said, there are two things she looks at, that, and she says they're two of the hot topics in the International Space Committee. One is actually getting women into outer space. So that's, mm. that's one thing. But the other, which I hadn't even thought about, was getting women onto the bodies that govern outer space. So right now it's men who are on all those governance committees making the decisions about how outer space is going to be governed and regulated. And so her point was, well, we don't just need women in outer space, we need women on those governance committees as well.
1: Absolutely, and I can't remember. Um, I can't remember the, the specifics of this now, but she has an anecdote in there too about just the fact that spacesuits weren't designed for women. Like very simple things that you just think. I mean, I understand a spacesuit is a complicated piece of equipment, but seriously, that didn't. Yes. You know, in the in the latter part of the 20th century, that no one had given that any thought was fairly flabbergasting.
0: But there was another anecdote which was equally horrifying to me, given as an excuse for why women shouldn't go into space, mm. which was seemed to be a completely specious, unfounded suggestion that women's urine was different, that it was heavier, and that if it was in space, that will create problems. I mean, it just reminded me of those old old arguments you used to hear about women in the law, that you couldn't mm-hmm. possibly have a women judge because there were no bathrooms for women in the court buildings. Incredible.
1: It's just taking all those conversations we've been having. And hopefully we're making headway on and putting them into this next, this next um, area. And I think what Alice does so wonderfully is this is there is a lot to think about in this piece, and she is a she is a beautiful thinker and a really fine researcher in her sort of area. I was thrilled this piece was picked up. Almost immediately, uh, by a a sort of international consortium of space researchers who sent it all over their website and fantastic, massive global pickup for this. But what I'm fascinated, what I'm excited about, I guess, is as you say, you're not a reader who knows a lot about science, or is you know is there in that space a lot. So she brings you this information, but she does it with such um, erudition, beautiful language, and humor. You know, there are just these little warm giggles, you know, that knowing Alice, I can just see her face while she's writing it. And I think that's I think that's a really um a really winning part of this particular essay.
0: Ash, I want to go back to something that you were talking about earlier. Um the idea of the possibility of of making a better world in space. I really mm-hmm. loved that. That really captured my imagination. So that she writes about the possibility of making making a, the mistakes that we've made on earth in terms Mm. of environmental degradation and structural inequalities are two of the things she really picks out. And she talks about space. I love this expression, space. as a." Let's not just talk about remaking space in the image of earth. We can do better than that. Let's make Mm. it better. And she talks about space as a source of redemption for the sins Mm. of earth. And I love that expression. And I love the way she wrote about how women, could help to shape this new utopia? What do you think women could bring to that, that men maybe can't?
1: Well, everything that we bring to all the conversations that we haven't been in, um, it is is just other perspectives, isn't it? It It is other ways of being. It is other priorities. It is probably other senses of intersection and possibility. It is different curiosities. It is different questions. Um, it, is, it is just an expansion of possibility. I also found that idea of space as a redemption just beautiful. I mean, one of the things that I've always found fascinating about the moon and about antarctica is you know the way we can have conversations about them as places that we need to protect and then there are other people who want to have conversations about them as just the next places that are our sources of extraction and And to conquer uh, and of and and to conquer exactly exactly and i think you know now of all times if we cannot see that it is not about It is not about mining differently. It is about not doing Mm. it in the first place. Mm. Um, So I think the kind of breadth of the, the science, the governance, the literary history, the imagination, understanding that all of these things can be part of the conversation about space. You know, Alice is essentially demonstrating what women can bring to the conversation by bringing all of these things to the conversation and insisting
0: that it has to be that big, that diverse. Ash, I need to ask you just quickly about the beautiful cover to this oh, one. So yes. it's a gorgeous painting, listeners, of uh, a woman putting on an astronaut's helmet. It's called Brave and it's by Catherine Longhurst. Where did you find that, Ash?
1: One of the things that makes
0: the job of an
1: editor so lovely is the moments of serendipity that turn up so we had this title escape routes that we wanted to use for this collection really before we knew any of the work that would be in it and we started to talk about the kind of image that we would like and carity culver our fantastic senior editor uh, was talking about that sort of highly stylized soviet space art of a you know particular era and uh, we, we kind of, you know, found some uh, images of that. Obviously, we're, we're always keen to use um, Australian artists and uh, we, you know, we looked in all sorts of different directions, couldn't find anything. I am both delighted and utterly ashamed to say that I literally typed in Australian artist Soviet space art <laughs> to my search engine of choice and... The work of Catherine Longhurst came up. So Catherine Longhurst is an Australian artist. She grew up in Russia. She spent some of her childhood there. Um, She lives and works in Australia. We found this particular series of images. We found this image. We loved it immediately. We all loved it. Um, This was before we knew that Alice's piece was coming into the book, which made it so wonderful when I was talking to Alice about writing this piece that I could say, listen, you kind of have to do it because look what I've got on the cover. But where this just became even lovelier again was that uh, when last year's, when the 2021 Archibald Prize was announced, Catherine Longhurst had this extraordinary portrait of Kate Sobrano in that exhibition which won the Packing Room Prize. Um, So suddenly there was all this conversation about Catherine and her work and we were wow. so excited to be able to say, fantastic, we are we are going to be showing people more of you um, further down the track. So it was, it was, um, it was the, the happiest of strokes of good fortune, I guess, that um that the universe provided this image. Um, and we were just so excited when it sort of intersected with what turned out to be a wonderful year for her as well.
0: Ash, I wanted to ask you just does- finally, about the poetry in this edition. Mm. So there's more poems than there usually are. There's seven. And they're very diverse, but they're all very special. I guess my first question was, I was wondering, did you ask the poets to write to a theme of escape or did you select pieces that they'd already written about escape or did you just ask them to write a poem for the edition? So
1: um, the poetry is the part of this edition that we do a general call out for. So we put a call out um, out for escape routes. You know, we could by that point talk about some of the pieces that we knew were in the book. So some of the sort of themes that we knew were being explored in fiction and nonfiction. It was very broad brush. It was the kind of idea of daydreams and jailbreaks and where we all want to be. Um, uh, we opened the call uh, for about a month. This edition, we always get a phenomenal response for poetry as well. Um, We know that this fourth edition is one that, you know, poets are really often keen to be a part of. So again, we ended up with, I think it was about 160 um, beautiful pieces of work. We try to bring more poetry into this edition because some of the pieces are much longer in this book. We have, you know, kind of, particularly when this was the novella edition, we would have very long pieces and then we would try to sort of, you know, punctuate it a little. So I'm delighted that we had seven poets in this time, but they all came through that process. Again, delighted to find um, names of some people that we knew and had worked with before in here, delighted to discover some new names as well. Um, So Kate Kennedy, who a lot of people will know, um, her poem, The Night Sky from the Surface of Mars, is a response to those amazing photographs that came through last year um, from the Mars rover, which were so powerful and moving. Lloyd Jones, who of course a lot of people um, will know his name from his Mr. beautiful Pitt. fiction. Yeah. Um, his piece is uh, a memory of an escape that he had um, traveling through America back in 1979. Um, Peter Sfrisnecki, gorgeous piece about his mother coming to Australia as a migrant after mm. the Second World War. Coco Fett, an incredible piece about the Um, Mm. violence in Burma, Coco Fett we'd worked with before in one of our earlier editions. Mm. Um, And then two poets we hadn't worked with before, Jodie Lee Mattia, who's based up here in Brisbane, and Nick Mansfield. They're both writing about historical characters from Mm. other places. So Jodie's is this wonderful story about um, an artist who escaped from an an insane asylum Mm. in America about 100 years ago, Mm. and Nick Mansfield's Frederick the Great, which is this beautifully moving Thing piece about power and friendship and impossibility. All of these poems, there is so much distilled into their mm. into their smallness. I don't mean smallness in a kind
0: of pejorative sense, no. but they are
1: they're all really essential the pieces. Small of jewel.
0: Order. Each of them is like yes. a finely polished jewel. One thing I wanted yeah. to say, and I'm not sure if I'd made this comment before, is that I really like the way in Griffith reviews. So in the index, you have things. Um, you have all of the works indexed by genre, so mm. fiction, nonfiction, poetry, picture story. But what I really love is that as you read the book, they're they're not in that order. So then there'll yeah. be a piece of nonfiction next to a piece of fiction then interspersed with a piece of poetry. And as you say, that's a really lovely thing, especially when some of the fiction and nonfiction pieces are longer that's really lovely to, to then come across a poem, I think. I
1: think, too, what's interesting for us, and, and with the poetry, we have the great gift of we come to it when other parts of the book are already in place. So we know um, we have the opportunity to be a bit more deliberate in terms mm. of trying to set up the conversations between the longer and the shorter works. But, yes. but I do love the way the conversation then flows. You know, sometimes you can see very clearly how a longer piece steps into a shorter piece, but when you've put it in place, it becomes obvious what the next longer piece needs to be to kind of carry on the train of thought. When we were um, printing this edition, when we were finalizing this edition, this is the first edition without Julianne Schultz as our publisher, um, so we're now working with Professor Scott Harrison, who's the Pro Vice Chancellor of Arts, Education, and Law here at Griffith Uni. Um, one of the loveliest bits of feedback that we had from Scott when he read through the proofs, his first kind of read through as publisher, was to say, "You know, how do you get the order to work like this? What kind of what kind of process is it?" And it is this lovely this lovely sort of series of conversations between me and our managing editor, John Taig, and at Culver, our senior editor, of just starting to understand the flow and the pace and the rhythm. And, and, you know, we know that some readers come in thinking that they want to read the fiction and not really knowing if they're interested in the essays or vice versa. And so part of what we're doing is, is trying to find a way of, of helping them to keep going through Mm. the book. And I'm so delighted that we get a lot of feedback from people saying, in the nicest possible way, there were so many things I didn't think I wanted to read in there. But then, you know, I just sort of started on the journey. And I think that is lovely from our perspective, not just of being able to work with the writers to make the individual pieces, but of kind of trying to curate
0: the whole. That's just delightful when we feel like we get it right. Ash, in your introduction, you talk a little bit about escape, and you note that it's a, a fundamental aspect of many stories, and you suggest that a hankering for escape is about as universal a thing as there is. Why do you think that is?
1: Well, at the moment, I think there's a really obvious answer to that, but I think, um, and that's an understandable thing. I wonder though if a flip side is is a little bit of what. VJ Karana's character Sophie is, is exploring, which is that very human tendency to think the grass is greener somewhere else. So I think um, that's a flip side of it, maybe. We are we are possessed of this extraordinary thing as sentient beings of an imagination, which means we can wonder about other places and you know there is the the amazing side of that which means we can be the species that goes off and explores that that moves where we live you know we can change our habitat we can adapt in ways that others you know other species just can't but but maybe the sort of more negative flip of that is is something that could edge towards a kind of dissatisfaction a, a kind of constant um yearning or hankering I think escape is a really interesting word because there are there are so many sort of layers and and nuances to it Um, as I say at the moment what it means for a lot of people is the ability to travel to somewhere where they would like to see someone they love that they haven't seen for a long time Um, but obviously you know um, it is about so many other things and how that is all bound up with the human experience i think is is a really fascinating sort of space to mine you could probably have every edition of griffith review exploring ideas of escape and have a completely different set of conversations in every one i think it feeds into so many other
0: questions that we ask ourselves and so many other things that we try and do ash thank you so very much for speaking to me today about edition 74 it's um it's just packed with wonderful writing as always i'm only sorry that we can't talk about every one of the pieces but thank you for the conversation about those that we have picked and um good luck with the sales and with the promotion of this fantastic edition
1: thanks nick it's been a
0: pleasure thank you for listening to books 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 if you liked what you heard in this episode please go to my website nicoleaberdy.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me, Nicole Aberdey, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books, Books, Books at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. It would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books, Books, Books a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.